This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. He's walking eastbound, walking eastbound. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. In today's story, we head to South St. Paul, Minnesota, and we learn the story of Sergeant Corey Slifko. Corey was a driven and dedicated cop. He quickly worked his way up the ranks and excelled in every position he earned. Corey believed in service before self, and he loved law enforcement. To those on the outside, he had a great career, a beautiful and successful wife, two amazing kids he adored, and a beautiful home to raise his family in. Yet, on the inside, Corey was struggling. He was struggling to manage the stress and PTSD from the job, also chronic pain from multiple injuries at work, a struggle that became too much for him to bear. Today, we relive Corey's life, his career, his struggles, and we take a hard look at officer wellness, the mental health concerns for our law enforcement, the stigma that's still attached to the stress and PTSD that goes along with the job, and the dangers of not addressing this real threat to the men and women, the heroes who serve to protect our communities every day. Corey Michael Slifko. Born in June of 1976 in Indiana and lived there until his family moved to southeast Minnesota, where he entered elementary school in the city of Rochester, home of the world-renowned Mayo Clinic. Corey graduated from Mayo High School in 1994. His high school was named after brothers William and Charles Mayo, the founders of Mayo Clinic. And the school was notable for being constructed in an almost perfect circle, aside from a few appendages, and for the housing of the Rochester Planetarium. (laughs) 
Corey then attended college at the Rochester Community and Technical College. He did skills at the Alexandria Community College and earned his degree in law enforcement. After completing his two-year associate's degree, Corey worked as a security guard for a couple of local security companies over the next couple of years. One night, he was assigned to work a wedding reception at the American Legion in Byron, Minnesota, just eight miles west of Rochester. A young 16-year-old by the name of Katie was there with her parents and friends at a family friend's wedding. Corey was a security officer at the Byron Legion for the wedding, and that's where we met. My mom was chatting with them, and they were just visiting, and I think it came up like, hey, are you single? I got lots of nieces here if you're interested, you know, and, and so she tried to hook him up with a couple of her nieces, and like, I want to meet her, and like, nope, that's my daughter, <laughs> and so long story short, she introduced us, and you know, later that night, he had asked, can I take her out to a movie? It'll be a daytime movie, you know, and I'm like, yeah, that's fine, because I was in high school, and we met in September of 96. They went to that movie the next day, and had been together ever since. Katie was only 16 at the time. Corey had just turned 20. Katie was immediately attracted to Corey's personality. His personality was so outgoing and just so like, you know, chipper and fun and, you know, just right away started visiting and, you know, just super kind and, you know, seemed very caring and just like the outgoingness and in his personality and easygoing. He was a super easygoing person, so super easy to chat with, you know, and and have a conversation, and you just have that comfort level right away. In addition to working security jobs in Rochester, Corey also volunteered as a first responder for Orinoco First Responders, helping with emergency medical calls for the city and surrounding township. He quickly worked his way up to Director of Emergency Medical Services in 1998. He was only 22 at the time. Back in the late 90s, it was a long process to get hired by law enforcement agencies, especially metro agencies. Usually, there was a testing process involved well before any interviews were conducted. Also, in many cases, there may be a few hundred applying for just a handful of positions. On September 15th, 1999, Three years after earning his college degree, Corey finally landed his first full-time law enforcement job. Corey was hired with the South St. Paul Police Department. Corey was so excited for this opportunity. He'd worked so hard up to this point to build his resume and experience and land that first full-time law enforcement position. He truly believed this is what he was meant to do. He was now South St. Paul Police Officer Corey Slifko. Corey was surprised to find a friend of his from law enforcement school. Brian Wickey had also been hired at South St. Paul PD just a month before him. I first met Corey actually in 1996. So I had graduated out of St. Cloud and went to Alexandria for skills, which that in itself was a completely eye-opening experience for me, you know, the, the quasi-boot camp setting. And that was where I first got to meet Corey. So I met him in uh, 96 when we were up at Skills. During the course of that, you know, 10-, 12-week program, spent a lot of time with him, got to know just a little bit about him, his background. First person, to be honest, I've ever met from the Rochester or Noco Casson, you know, down in that area. You know, we, we graduate Skills, and then we drifted apart. 
kind of lost track of them. Then we reconnected in 1999. We had uh, unbeknownst to each other, both applied for a position at the South St. Paul Police Department. Uh, we both uh, were successful in that. And uh, we reunited our friendship when we joined here in uh, 1999. So I came on August of 99, and I believe Corey came on in September. So we were just exactly 30 days apart. Why that is, I don't know. And then from, the, from that point forward, um, you know, we, we came into what I'll call a, a small organization, roughly around 30, you know, 31 officers, but a very dynamic, very busy, a very complex uh, community and organization. And they hadn't hired anyone in four or five years. You know, unlike the uh, the turmoil that exists, and I imagine every agency now where staff is, you know, turnover is continual. Corey and I came at a time in a department that hadn't hired anyone in quite a while. And, uh, you know, through hindsight, I think the organization was pretty stagnant. So when Corey and I came in, uh, it, 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 we immediately upturned the apple cart. And we had officers that had gotten very complacent in uh, just taking their radio calls and they didn't want to rock the boat. And the, the focus uh, of many of the officers and at that time was simply take your calls and, you know, worry about the next call. And Corey and I were of the same mindset. And it's like, that, that ain't going to cut it. You know, we're out here to, at that time, arrest bad guys. And immediately drew the ire, immediately drew the ire of more of our, oh, I'll call them our seasoned officers who were continually upset that, you know, we're in twitch chases, we're arresting people. And it was, you know, at that time, in my recollection, the beginning of the, probably the methamphetamine explosion in our communities. So anyway. That's where uh, first got to meet Corey. We, we started together. We worked the same shift together. Uh, we were buried on midnights, never saw daylight for the first, I don't know how many years together. And uh, just had a great time growing as uh, growing together as police officers in this, in this community and in our careers. St. Paul is the state capital of Minnesota with over 300,000 residents. It borders Minneapolis to the west and many other suburb cities in the metro area. South St. Paul, located in Dakota County, is located immediately south and southeast of St. Paul. There's also a West St. Paul and a North St. Paul. They're all separate cities from St. Paul. Historically, the town was notable as a major meatpacking location with the South St. Paul Union Stockyards. Subsequently, many residents are descended from immigrants of Southern European and Eastern European heritage who came to work in the meatpacking plants in the early 20th century. The city, which was established in 1887, is home to over 21,000 people in a six-square-mile area. So I would describe South St. Paul as a very, very blue-collar town, Uh, a high percentage of rental a very limited number of retail establishments, a couple gas stations, uh, a handful of bars, and a couple liquor stores. Uh, A significant business park, but but at the end, the bread and butter of our community is our workforce housing stock. And quite frankly, that with that comes some challenges and uh, that, that keeps our department fairly busy. Our department has hovered right around the 30 number for staffing uh, during uh, my tenure here. That's gone up a couple, it's gone down a couple, but uh, on average we've stuck to right around that 30, uh, 30 officers from the chief on down to the least tenured officer. In October of 2003, Katie and Corey were married, and soon after they would start their family. Son Ethan Michael, which was Corey's middle name, was born in July of 2005. 
And two years later, their daughter Maya was born in May of 2007. As a young, enthusiastic, hard-driving new cop, Corey quickly worked his way up in the department. So Corey and I both started in uh, patrol, just working midnight shifts, uh, pumping shift after shift on midnights and having a blast. Early on in his career, if I had to guess, I would say within well under three years, we had some internal changes and uh, we were trying to uh, reinvigorate, if you will, our investigative unit. So early, early in his career, Corey got pulled as the one of the least senior officers, I believe, and got put into investigations, which which opened an immense number of doors for him career-wise. During a stint in investigations, he was able to serve as our assigned drug task force agent. That was a prelude to him being on our uh, countywide collaborative uh, SWAT team. He's gone through a couple different iterations since then, but he was... Uh, Started as an operator on that team and eventually worked all the way up to the assistant commander role. Served on that team for a number of years. After a number of years in that, what I'll call non-patrol world, uh, Corey returned back to the street for some career development. And then shortly thereafter was uh, promoted to sergeant. I believe that took place probably in 2013. Was instrumental in our field training process and actually tasked with our, uh, which I feel is one of the most crucial roles in any organization is the development of those that are going to succeed you. And uh, Corey was tasked with uh, oversight for our field training program. So he was instrumental in the development of, you know, a good portion of the officers that are with us today. And then he carried that role when he left uh, patrol duties and assumed what was a newly created um, administrative sergeant role, which uh, is really not well defined and and more uh, of a jack of all trades. Uh, you're, you're providing street supervision, you're, you're overseeing a number of uh, programs for the department, and uh, Corey uh, excelled, quite frankly, he excelled in uh, every role that he served. Gary Rutherford, police chief for Farmington, where Corey and Katie lived, worked with Corey on the SWAT team. And we were both pretty new SWAT cops. Um, he was he was he was competent right out of the gate, which is pretty unusual for you know a, a new cop coming onto the SWAT team. He was just he was always just he was all in on everything that he did when it came to the job, and you could tell he was just one of those guys. He was smart enough that he just he understood concepts. You know, it wasn't just that he knew how to knew how to shoot straight or he knew how to make a proper entry into a room. He understood the whys to everything very early on. And that's that's what stuck out to me so much about Corey is that he just he grasped things very quickly. You know, to describe Corey as an officer, I, I would say I, I was in a unique spot. I had a perspective not only as a coworker, but I have a lot of family and friends in this community and I was able to gain insight through their perspectives as well. Corey was the the ultimate professional, almost almost to a fault. He he uh, always portrayed an image of competence and an image of uh, professionalism. Which, when he turned it off, when he was not in police officer mode, was the polar opposite. And and, and I don't say that to be negative, but Corey was uh, so fit and proper when he was on the street that when you actually met him as a person, it not that it was a polar opposite, but he really had the ability to turn it on and turn it off. He really had the ability to ramp it up, uh, was immensely qualified, knew, uh, knew his business, uh, knew how to handle himself, knew how to handle others. 
But at the same time, he could flip that light switch off and, and come up with some of the, the funniest or the most lighthearted uh, commentary or memes or statements that I, I've yet to experience out of anyone. To most of his friends, from the outside, it looked like Corey was doing great. He was living the American dream. He had a successful career he'd worked hard for. He had a beautiful wife with a great career herself in the medical field. He had two amazing kids that he absolutely adored, and he had a beautiful home to raise his family in. However, over time, Katie started to see changes in Corey. I think, you know, part of it was that you know, mentality of you suck it up, you go to your next call, you you put on your, your different face and you go from call to call to call and you you hold it all in, right? Like back back then that kind of that was kind of the thing. You you just do it. You go to go to those things and you, you suck it up. And um and so that's yeah, and that's kinda of how it was in the beginning. I didn't notice so many changes in the beginning because I think he was so gung ho and just so excited to do his career. He loved it doing it and he loved his job. So it was just like that, but over time and, and different calls and different experiences and things like that, it began to, to wear and you could see the stress and the change and the, the lack of sleep and the, you know, the irritability and, and things like that. And more came with injuries, right? Like the job is not injury free. And so just, just those kind of things and, and the shift work, you know, shifting back and forth from, you know working days to working nights to now like having a family to now all of a sudden having to manage a family work and you know outside things and things like that just I think over time right I don't think it was a I can't definitively say on this date this is when I noticed changes it was just over time things just gradually changed personality changed irritability became higher stress flow became higher sleep became less sleep had become a big issue for Corey. He had started using alcohol to help go to bed at night. He was also using Ambien to sleep, and the two of them together can lead to dangerous side effects. As Corey and Katie found out on the morning of June 12th, 2013, when Corey was arrested for DWI. So it happened at like 10 or 10.30 in the morning, and I was at work and got the phone call from Mike Running, one of the other officers of South St. Paul that you know just called and told me that Corey was in jail and I'm like well, what what are you talking about you know and then that's when he told me that what had happened um, and I'm like no you're kidding like that that can't be the case <laughs> and he's like nope it is like you need to get home now and I'm like okay like let me figure this out I'll, I'll call my parents and whatever because mind you our kids were really little and I had actually stayed the night at my parents the night before because I worked two days in a row and that's kind of what we did for daycare purposes and so my parents brought me back home and that's when I found out all about it um, South St. Paul was called before, before me, and you know they were on top of it, helped and took care of what they needed to take care of, and I just waited at home for him to, to get back home. But I mean, totally not a Corey thing. Like he, you know, didn't he left in pajamas, no wallet, no cell phone, you know, things like that that are not him. This isn't right. Something's wrong. Like honestly, Corey would never risk his career, never. So, like, that's where I'm like, what happened? He had to have, something had to have happened because he would have never, in all the years I'd been with him, he had never drank and drove when he shouldn't have or, you know, I mean, I drove or he didn't, he stayed where he was at or, he, you know, it would have never happened. So, it was like, what is going on here? Something happened. Due to the high amounts of Ambien in his system, along with the alcohol, 
Corey couldn't remember anything about that morning. He has no idea. He doesn't have any recollection of any of that. I mean, his memory of any of that incident is, was not there. You know, that was the hardest part, right? Because there's no way to tell the story when he doesn't have a memory of what happened. So thing was he remembers, you know, being at home. And then the next thing he knows, he's waking up in jail and has no clue how he got there. Well, we did lots and lots and lots of research after that. I mean, like I said, it just didn't make sense at all. And like hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like now all of a sudden you're like, oh, that makes sense. You're falling asleep in a chair, but we didn't think about those. You know what I mean? Like you don't think about those things. You think medicines are there to help and that you're going to take them because you're going to feel better. Not knowing that they have some of these kind of side effects, you know? I worked with Corey a lot through that one, and that one was challenging in that I have never interacted with someone in that position in my life who had the lack of comprehension of what was taking place. So I, I've had plenty of uh, coworkers in law enforcement that say, oh, BS, Ambien, this is BS. Uniquely, I had very uh, many, actually, that had approached me after Corey's incident and they would share with me their personal stories or the personal stories regarding their spouse or their loved ones that were taking Ambien for sleep-related issues and the bizarre and absolutely crazy behavior they would engage in. Uh, it still does not fit consistently with me because I haven't personally experienced it, but uh, the, the, the general... Uh, the general timeline that I, I've been able to piece together from my conversation with Corey and Katie surrounding that, where uh, at the time Katie was finished up her schooling down at Mayo or down that way, um, she had taken the kids were down with mom and dad. Corey was, I think he was going back to school at that time for his bachelor's degree. I think that was that period of time. And he was doing some homework. He was home by himself, left unsupervised, which no wife should leave their husband unsupervised in my opinion. Um, and then Corey uh, had started drinking some wine. And as the evening went on, the way it was explained to me as a normal practice for him at bedtime would be to take his Ambien X number of minutes before he went to bed. And he had been consuming wine, he took his Ambien, and that's the last thing he remembers. And when we put the story back together, the amount of Ambien, and I don't remember the days before, the amount missing is not consistent with when the prescription was issued. And from my very limited understanding, Ambien, and my terminology, is not an abusable drug. It's not like a uh, opioid or you know another substance where the more you take, you get more of an impact. So what we've been able to uh, assume or kind of build back together is that in my terminology, his brain went to sleep, but his body stayed awake. And based on the condition of the house, when we got him back there that next day, more likely than not, he continued this. He got stuck in this loop of taking his meds and then having another glass of wine and then taking his meds because he didn't remember he took them and having another glass of wine and kind of stuck in this loop at some point where his brain went to sleep but his body stayed awake. And interestingly, um, and I don't think he knew it at this point in time when he was ultimately stopped. I think he didn't have his wallet on him. I think he might have been barefoot. I don't really recall. But he had a gas can with him, I believe. And he had told me later that evening when we're trying to piece it back together, he's mentally, he is significantly 
cloudier than his alcohol level would have made him. And I'd ask him, like, what did you do last night? What were you doing? And he said, the last thing I remember is thinking, I got to get up in the morning. I have to go get gas for the lawnmower. I have to cut the grass, come home, take a shower, and I have to go to work. And in hindsight, the next day, the condition he's found in is he's trying to go to the gas station and get gas. Didn't have his wallet, and I don't think he had his shoes on him or, you know, what, what condition he was in. But uh, his brain knew what he was doing, but his body didn't, or vice versa. It was a, 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 a unique experience, and I, I think um, while nobody would want to go through it, I don't know that anyone could come out the other end as strong as Corey came out the other end. I don't think I certainly could. This is when he ended up spending more time with their pastor, Pastor Marcy Crispy Bauman. We have some mutual friends that uh, ended up living next to the Slifkos. So that's how I first met them, but at some neighborhood thing or whatever. But then when Corey had his Ambien incident in 2013, um, he ended up needing to do some community service and there was just like a literal come to Jesus moment for their family of we're not okay right now. And at that point, they didn't know if he was keeping his job. They were pretty sure he wasn't going to, you know, everything. It was all up in the air. And they came and found our church, the church I was pastoring, mainly because of that, again, the mutual friend um, had invited them and just said, you know, it's a great place to not be okay, you know. And um, so we met that way. And then Corey had community service to get done. And so in turn, I really got to have some time with him because he offered to help at the at the campus that I was at. Corey helped provide security for church services and events. He helped train volunteers and church staff in safety and critical incident response. He also volunteered at many church events and he helped church staff wherever he could. That was also the year that Corey had an unexpected encounter with a very well-known national celebrity. Corey's working a midnight shift, and it was like, I don't know, one or two in the morning, and he was just driving around, and he went by the the airport in South St. Paul because charters and things like that flew in and out of there, or small private, you know, planes flew in and out of the South St. Paul airport, and so he was down patrolling down there, and he saw the lights on in the actual, like, airport, and he's like, what the heck's going on? Like, the airport lights shouldn't be on, that's you know, so he, of course he went and checked it out. When he got in there, there's people in there, and he's like, uh, "What are you guys doing here?" Kind of thing. And they're they're like, "Oh, we're part of Marie Osmond's show, and you know, we just flew in. We were waiting for a rental car, but we can't find the keys." And he's like, ha, 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 "You're so funny! Like, seriously, what are you doing here?" <laughs> you know. Marie Osmond is a multiple gold and platinum selling artist and CMA winner. She's garnered numerous Billboard chart-topping singles and albums and written three New York Times best-selling books. She's entertained literally millions throughout the world through television, radio, film, literature, live concerts, and Broadway performances. Her career has spanned five iconic decades in the entertainment business, and that night in South St. Paul, she would become friends with Corey. I was uh, I was doing a Christmas tour, and we had flown into the smaller airport there at St. Paul, you know, St. Paul's airport there, and um, I was told because we were getting in late that we had to have a rental car uh, to get to our, our hotel, and I was told that the rental car keys were in the office. Well, when we got there, 
the door to the office was was locked and so i'm th sitting there thinking oh maybe they hung them in the christmas tree so i'm looking everywhere well all of a sudden i looked in the letter slot thing and there were the keys on the on the desk and so i thought oh man so i have kind of thin arms and <laughs> well, they are they're tight and so i was reaching my arm into the letter slot to try to unlock the door to get these rental car keys just as Corey walked in and uh, he's like hey what are you doing <laughs> and, and i was like uh, officer you know I i'm marie osmond and i'm trying to get my and he's like yeah sure you are <laughs> we ended up laughing about it and we i don't know he, we just kicked it off he was just the nicest guy um and so we just kind of got to know each other and then i got to know katie and <clears throat> later on i was doing uh, a talk show and i guess the topic was somebody who was a uh, i guess he was robbing a bank or something and accidentally got on the internet and left his personal information well of all people corey was the one that found the information went down and arrested the guy for robbing the bank or whatever it was and I went of all people to get public notoriety for that. It was Corey. And so, so I, I showed that. Anyway, we just became super friends. And uh, really, that that was how our connection was initially made. So that's kind of how that story started. And then, of course, you know, they chatted for a while. And then she's like, you have to come to my show tonight. And Corey's like, I work. And he's like, she's like, find a way. You've got tickets and backstage passes. Come to my show. And so we ended up finding somebody to work for him. And then my dad and uh, the kids and I and Corey and my nephew, Will, actually ended up coming because we had, we had six tickets. So we went to the show and we visited with her backstage. And, you know, they just kept kind of in contact. And um, Darla, who is Marie's manager, has just always kept in contact with Corey. And then we went to the next year they came back and we went for my birthday. We went to their Christmas show at... Um, Mystic Lake and then we went you know and then we went out to Vegas and went to their show at Vegas the Donnie and Marie show out in Vegas and, and it was super sweet because Marie even filmed a, a video with Corey to our kids because we were out in Vegas without the kids and she had sent she had recorded a video with Corey and just said next time you're out in Vegas I promise you know you guys are going to come to the show your parents promise we'll, they'll bring you and action hey Ethan and Maya uh, I'm here with you know the dad and uh, I left a mark on his head Yes, it's, lip, it's lipstick. Your mother said it's okay. Um, no, <laughs> I hear you guys are coming out to see us next time you come to Vegas. So I'm making a video so that you can hold him accountable to make sure that he actually brings you next time. Okay? <laughs> Bye. You know, it was just a cute little thing that we were able to send to the kids. And like I said, over, over the years, they've just kind of texted here and there and, and whatever. And so we just kind of had this like text back and forth friendship. Yeah, so Darla, I keep in touch with her, and, you know, she checks in on the kids and I, and, you know, we just kind of text back and forth pictures and life, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, because, like, that's Corey's, like, claim to fame, right? He he got Marie, Marie Osmond, and he got to arrest her, and, and, like I said, they're just sweet, sweet people, like, just truly have hearts of gold. Even as he struggled with stress, he struggled with getting enough sleep. He'd continue to work hard to learn and grow, earning his bachelor's degree in law enforcement back in 2015 from Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. He was recognized with honors, summa cum laude, and outstanding student award finalist. 
In 2015, Corey suffered his most severe of many on-the-job injuries. In our, what I'll call our business park area, we have an industrial grinding operation, a cement or a, you know, raw material grinding operation. And the equipment that is used for that takes an immense amount of power and thus has an immense uh, cabling that supports it. Um, given its proximity to the river and some scrap yards, it is a target for some of those in our community that may uh, want to, you know, illegally process scrap metals. So it's a frequent vic- uh, victim, the business is a frequent victim of burglaries, thefts, damage to property as people are up there with sawzalls just trying to hack away any chunk of copper that he can to go scrap. On the, on the evening when Corey was first hurt, he had been contacted, uh, the Dakota County Sheriff's Office has a Parks, Lakes, and Trails unit that patrols the riverway and the, the trails along the river, which happens to be adjacent to this property. And an employee from that Parks, Lakes, and Trails unit had contacted him and said, I think he had observed something or he had stopped something in progress, one of the two at this business. And knowing that, most of the time these uh, knuckleheads don't act uh, independently, when Corey and his shift responded down there, they discovered an open door. And given the lack of maintain- maintenance on this building, it led them to believe that a burglary was taking place inside, that the person's responsible may be hiding inside or actively in the progress of burglarizing this business. So using light discipline, Corey enters the facility um, with some of his officers. Uh, using hand signals and against light discipline, uh, they, they fan out in this property and begin conducting a search. Unbeknownst to Corey, uh, this business had an oil changing pit inside for some of their equipment, and they did not take what I'll call basic safety precautions and roll or chain off their oil changing pit. So again, walking through this immense business uh, using light discipline, basically in pitch darkness, uh, listening for sounds and looking for activity, Corey finds himself falling into what is an oil changing pit and I don't know what the, the depth of that is I imagine it's you know 15 feet or more um, on his way down there's oil drums there's metal stairways and Corey lands at the bottom of this pit um, significantly injuring um, you know multiple areas of his body his, his head his neck his uh, hand uh, which which resulted in his extrication from this pit and ultimate uh, transport to the hospital Corey had uh, some pretty significant injuries to his neck that he received injections for, and my, my very limited uh, terminology, I'll call them like cortisone-type injections. He had pretty significant injuries to his hand that resulted in some loss of mobility, some loss of function, some loss of strength. That resulted, again, in uh, regular injections. And it was this incident, this was the, the, in hindsight, it was this incident that was the beginning of what I'll call your attractable pain, that I first noticed in Corey, in, in, in that it began to affect, I don't want to, it never affected his work product. It affected his availability to come to work. And as a result, uh, it, 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 it impacted his personal life. Greatly. While this injury was significant and it caused a tremendous amount of challenges for Corey with chronic pain, most agree this wasn't the start of Corey's challenges. It just added to the already stressful career path he had chosen. I don't think that's what started it. I think like any person immersed in in this line of work, you you get exposed to an immense amount of um, an immense number of critical incidents that you become numb to over time. And, you know, through the lens of hindsight, since Corey's death, 
and going back over the product of his career and looking at some of the incidents, many of which I was part of, many of which I wasn't, to any person outside of this line of work, each of those incidents would have been a life-changing event. But for those in this line of work, it's another day at the office. And I don't think we organizationally or professionally um, probably supported our staff, Corey included, uh, to the extent we should have or could have um, as we processed each of those events over the last 20 years. Corey kept pushing through his challenges. In 2017, he attended Northwestern University Center for Public Safety in Evanston, Illinois, and was a graduate of their School of Police Staff and Command, Class 424. When he wasn't working, he was often volunteering his time in his community. In 2018, he volunteered as an assistant youth baseball coach for the Farmington Tigers baseball team. That same year, he also volunteered as an assistant coach for the Metro Baseball League in Burnsville. In 2019, Corey volunteered as a law enforcement mentor at Rasmussen College in Egan, Minnesota, helping guide college students in the early stages of their education. He worked with students to help them understand what was necessary to become a police officer, along with the responsibilities and the daily routines they could expect. He would also assist them with networking in the law enforcement community. As hard as Corey tried to push forward and hide his pain to those from the outside looking in, Corey's struggle would soon come to a tragic end. It was November 5th, 2019. Corey had been suffering from constant back and ankle pain from his numerous work injuries. Corey had also been suffering from debilitating headaches, migraines that he'd had for a couple of months by that time. These headaches resulted in him sleeping for two to three days straight. He was getting more and more depressed, and Katie was begging him to get more help. She was also trying to convince him to get a CT scan to try and figure out the headaches. The two had been attending couples counseling. Corey was seeking a specialist, and he was also going to start working with a PTSD specialist through work. Corey and Katie had discussed suicide cases in the past. When the topic of an officer's suicide was brought up, Corey told Katie he'd never do that to her and the kids. So, while she was really concerned about his mental health, she never thought that he would consider suicide. So, um, the day of, I was at work, and Corey was at home. He was supposed to go into work that afternoon to do some training of some sort. Um, I can't remember if it was, like, fit testing or what kind of training, but he was going to go into work that afternoon. He was supposed to work over the weekend. Um, He didn't work, you know, Friday and Saturday because he wasn't feeling well. He wasn't sleeping. He was having headaches you know, having issues, so he didn't go into work Friday or Saturday, but then did go in Sunday night and worked an overnight shift. And then Monday seemed, you know, okay, really run down and worn out, and just tired, right? Um, Tuesday, I left for work in the morning, and I talked to him about midday. He just seemed tired. Um, I asked him, you know, to bring Ethan up for uh, an x-ray. He had, I thought, had broken his finger over the weekend at basketball, and just thought that maybe he could wait another day and 
whatever and said like okay you know I gotta go and I'm busy at work and I'll just talk to you later and then I got home from work and the kids had said that either dad was sleeping or he wasn't home they weren't sure they didn't they didn't know um because that's how kids are and so I took I shouldn't say kids it was Maya home um Ethan was out to eat with his grandma um and Maya had volleyball tryouts so I took her to volleyball tryouts I ran some errands in between and then when I came home I hadn't heard from Corey in that entire time and so it seemed really really odd to me that he hadn't called he hadn't checked in he hadn't been like hey my has volleyball like none of the above and initially I thought it was he was just sleeping and still sick not feeling well and so then I tried calling him he didn't answer and his car was home so I knew he was home and um I just kept calling and, and nobody answered and the kids were like um, I think he's sleeping, and I'm like, okay, so I went to go check on him. It was around 9.30 p.m. that night. Katie went upstairs. She found the door to the guest room was locked. Katie then went into the master bedroom closet and checked the gun safe. Corey's duty weapon was missing. Katie had a bad feeling because Corey would only use the guest room to sleep after working. He would come home from work, he'd keep his firearm with him, and he'd lock the door to sleep. But they all knew he hadn't been working. That previous night, he moved to the guest room during the night, telling Katie he was having a hard time sleeping. She called out to Corey, but got no answer. She repeatedly knocked on the door and got no response. She then picked the lock with a bobby pin. She opened the door, and she found Corey's body under the comforter. He was on his back with his head on the pillows. Katie, a nurse, checked for a pulse. Corey was dead. I just panicked, you know, like, no idea what to do. And so I, you know, I went, I had already sent the kids down the basement because I knew something wasn't right when he wasn't answering his phone and the door wouldn't open. And then I went down and got the kids, and I told him that told them, and I told his mom. And then I just panicked again, like I, I didn't know what to do. So I called my neighbor to come over to get the kids, and then I called my parents. And in the meantime, Ethan called nine one one. Police and fire. Hello. Um. I'm son at my house. Um. No, my dad, um, we couldn't get the door open the past, like, few hours, and we finally unlocked the door. Um, more and more happened. I don't know what else to say. Okay, what what address I think are you at? Um, 19382 Century Court. Okay. Just stay on the line with me here. Okay. Okay, can you, can you please hear me? Yep, I, so... I think he shot himself. I heard my mom say he did, and I'm really scared. Okay. And, and, um, who, and who are you there with? Um, I'm there with my mom, my sister, and my grandma. Um, I think it may be due to PTSD. My dad's a okay. police officer for South St. Paul. Okay. So so you think he, he shot himself? Um, that's what I heard my mom say. Okay. So so where's your dad now? I, I don't want to go up and look. Um, I'm on my main level. He's upstairs in our guest bedroom. Okay. Is there anyone with him? What? Is there anyone with him? Um, no. Okay. Is, do we know if he's breathing? I don't think so. My oh. mom ran out of the room and she sent us to the basement. Okay. Mm. 
So how many people are, are there? There's four people at the moment. Okay. <laughs> and then how old are you? I, I am 14. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I can hear my mom screaming. Okay. Yep, tell everybody just to stay out out of the bedroom. Okay. 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 Mom, mom, they said to stay out of the bedroom. Come down here. And un, unless you guys think that, that we can help them. My mom said he's gone. I'm not fired. Stop. Calm down, my, my Okay. Can you guys please hurry? Yep, they're coming in as fast as they can. Ethan then hands the phone to Katie. They need to come. I'm so sorry. No. Nope. I don't know what the hell happened. He just shot himself. Just, oh, so, so you guys heard heard the bang or what? No, no, we haven't been home all night. I ran and I did errands and things and, I, and he wasn't answering his phone and I checked for his work on and I didn't see it and so his, the door was locked so I was super suspicious and I kept pounding on the door and he wasn't answering. I kept calling and, and then I got in there and there's something wrong. Okay. So you, like I so, had this shitty feeling. Okay, so, so you guys were not home when, when this happened? Well, my son, I don't know. I don't know when it happened. Okay. My son answered the door and nobody answered. I knocked on the door earlier today and nobody answered. Okay. And, and what is your name? My name is Katie. Katie? Ethan. Yeah. Okay. What's, Ethan, stop. And, and what's stop. your last name? Let's go. Come here, guys. Maya, you cannot go. Okay. Okay. Just, I want you to keep everybody... Oh, okay. I can't, I can't, I can't. Like, the, the kids are, like, going crazy. Okay. Are, can they, is it just you and your, and your kids? He, they call Steph. My mother-in-law's here. My, her, her, her mom. Okay. No caller. Okay. Can they, can you guys get them out, out of the house? I'm trying, I'm trying. Is he, is he alert? Hold on. Yep, just stay on the line with me. I am. I'm trying to get my neighbor. Yep. Yep. No, because I don't want Camden waking up. Don't wake Camden up. I'm calling her. I know, Ethan. Steph, can you come over? Like right now? Corey shot himself. He's dead. Yeah, okay. he's dead here. Katie, over step now. Katie, okay. Can you, Bye. Katie? Yeah, I'm here. Can Can you get your kids over I, the? I'm trying. Into the neighbors. I'm trying. I'm okay. trying. Okay, I'm trying very yep. hard to get them. Okay. Got an officer that's getting close. All right. I know. Don't let him come with lights and sirens, please. He's a police officer. That's yep. the last thing I need. Okay. So you, I knew something wasn't right when the door was locked, and I didn't okay. check on it because he'd been sick with a headache for days, and I just let it go because he was sick with a headache. Okay. So he locked himself in the room? In, yep, in a guest bedroom. <laughs> Ethan, relax, please. Relax, honey. Relax. Please. Ethan, relax. Okay, can I hang up? Like, I'm, I'm okay. I, just, I got the sirens on. Tell him to turn them off. 
please. Okay. Please, super important. Yep, I'm letting them know. Oh God, no, no, they're coming in the neighborhood full, full force with lights and sirens. Well, there's like, there they go, there they go. I know, I know, but. All right, if if they're coming in the area, then I'll then I'll disconnect. Okay. Okay, they're here. Bye. All right, bye. By the time Katie got off the phone with dispatch, Farmington PD had arrived. Farmington officers found the kids outside, and Katie was inside the house with Corey's mother, who had recently moved in with them. Both were distraught and crying, Katie repeatedly telling them, He's gone. He's gone. Katie led them upstairs to the guest room on the left. The bedroom door was open, and you could see the outline of a body on the bed covered by a purple comforter. Corey's left hand, semi-clenched, was sticking out from the comforter. Officers pulled back the comforter where they identified Corey, obviously deceased, with a gunshot wound to the head. A number of officers now were arriving at the house. Several officers from Farmington PD and several Dakota County deputies started to arrive as well. Corey and Katie lived just outside of Farmington city limits in a subdevelopment in the jurisdiction of Dakota County. The initial Dakota County deputies who responded were unable to see any weapon in the bedroom without disturbing anything for the investigation. They secured the room and waited for Scott County detectives to arrive and do their investigation and process the room for evidence. This is pretty standard procedure, requesting the assistance of a neighboring county in a case involving an officer. Farmington's officers notified their chief, Gary, by phone. Was actually just getting ready to crawl into bed when uh, one of my officers that was working night shift called me and he ripped the band-aid off and he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that we're all out at uh, Corey's place and he shot himself. I mean, he ripped the band-aid right. I mean, I, I, my wife knew something bad, but she must have seen the color drain out of my face or something. But, you know, it's one of the, and that just, that takes a minute to process, especially when it's somebody that you know and somebody that you know well and somebody that you care about. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's not, that certainly isn't the first suicide that we've dealt with here, you know, but it was the first one, uh, at least that I've had to contend with that was an officer and it was somebody that I knew. And frankly, the, the problem for us, of course, was my officers that were working that night, I think three of the four knew Corey well, um, some very, very well. And that was just, was just a confluence of, horrible circumstances so then uh i said okay uh i will be right then i had to make the decision and I, you know and i'll be honest with you i actually struggled with deciding because i they they told me on the phone that, that uh, they were bringing uh, katie and the kids to the pd to our pd so i had to make the decision am i going to the scene or am i going to the pd and i'll be honest with you i didn't want to see Corey. i didn't want to see him like that that's not that's not what I want to remember of him. So I decided to go to the PD thinking that that was going to be easier for me. And I'll be honest with you, Jeff, it wasn't, it was, that was probably the hardest night of my career. Their house was now considered a crime scene until it could be processed. Katie's kids would be taken to a neighbor's house and Katie and Corey's mother would be driven to the Farmington police department for questioning. They would not be allowed back into their home until that following afternoon. 
When the Scott County detectives and Hennepin County medical examiner were on scene, they removed the comforter and determined Corey had used his duty gun. With his right hand, he had pointed the gun at the right side of his head, and he pulled the trigger. The bullet exiting out the left side of Corey's head. His empty holster was sitting on the nightstand on the right side of the bed. Next to the holster was his handgun light. They also found two cell phones on the floor in front of the bed. One was plugged in and the other one was face down on the floor. They found his Glock handgun still clenched in his right hand. A Dakota County deputy would then follow the medical examiner to their office with Corey's body and stand guard until relieved. The toxicology report indicated Corey was not under the influence when he killed himself. So that day, you know, it, it's interesting the, the things that stick in your mind um, in critical incidents. And I will absolutely say that day was a critical incident for me. Uh, that day, I believe we were having a, uh, I'll call it a chili cook, a chili cook-off, a uh, citywide kind of employee fun event. And I was just finishing up cooking a pot of chili and I hadn't talked to Corey um, for probably a day or two before that and I received a phone call from one of our reserve officers who happened to be working that night and when I answered the phone uh, she was inconsolable she was screaming she was crying and I had no idea what was taking place and I'm trying to get her I'm like calm down what's, what's going on why are you calling me what's taking place and then she had told me that uh, Corey shot himself so uh, I felt like I got punched in the chest. I just uh, hung up on her. Um, I called our dispatch center. And obviously them taking a cold call from, you know, they didn't know me from Joe Blow. I'm like, hey, I just got a call. Did this happen? And they didn't. They were hesitant to share. And I probably wasn't as polite as I could have been. And I said, hey, is there something taking place at Corey's house? And then they, they, they told me um, not, they told me about a gunshot and that the uh, sheriff's office was in route or already. Um, the next, I can't even tell you, week was just a blur at that point. Um, I grabbed my wife. We went, uh, I think, down to the house immediately. Uh, we got there, found out that uh, Ethan and Maya were over at the neighbor's. Uh, I think we got to the uh, Farmington Police Department <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, met up with Katie. And then that, uh, that started a, a long few days from there. Katie and Corey's mother would spend most of the night at the Farmington Police Department, and then the following day they went to the funeral home to start making arrangements. They weren't able to get back into their home until that following afternoon when law enforcement was done. Corey's pastor, Marcy, who had become very close with the family, found out about Corey that next so morning. So my friend, that's uh, Stephanie, that's one of their neighbors, she called me early in the morning and she was crying and um, and when she finally got it out, um, we both just sort of hung up and just 
on disbelief, of course, right? Um, and I thought, I have to go on with my day right now. Uh, but I texted Katie, not, not wanting to be a bother, and just said, I want to come be with you if that would help at all. And, um, and as I was starting to go to work, I took a right and I pulled into the Egan Police Department where I'm a chaplain and I went in and asked the chief knew if he um, had a minute and he went and got my favorite officer. You aren't supposed to have favorites, but um, Nate Tennyson uh, was brought in because Nate knew Corey too. And they, of course, all had heard. And um, I was angry and I was sad and I was confused and um we just all sat there. I cried like a snotty baby and just talked about how, I mean, those of us that have to, I, I tend to get called out to some of the ugliest suicides. That's sort of my niche with the Egan police department. And we know what it's like to be in the room after and deal with the family and the kids after. And I was, I, yeah, I think that's where it's so hard um, for us to figure out how bad it must have been for Corey to not, be able to see that with clarity you know you know that the brokenness was so real in that moment that because that clarity must have just totally been gone because he loves his family so much and he's well he's he is the guy that would say you need to call me you know so do me a favor and call me you know I mean I think that's the anger part that you have to deal with too like Oh, so this only goes one way, Corey. Like, why wouldn't you have called, you know? And I'm just one tiny character in his long list of amazing friends and fellow police officers that would have loved to have been there. And Katie, of course, too. Corey was like my brother. He was like a kid brother. It wasn't... I didn't take him too serious to the point where I think that's why it hurt so freaking bad when it was like... Corey, we didn't think you were Superman. Why wouldn't you just be honest? And I can't, when I'm thinking through the whole thing, you know, trying to figure out what possibly could have happened, that whole thing of if he hadn't had three days of migraine, right? Like, if he'd only had one day of a bad migraine, he probably would have snapped out of it. But it was three days, and it was, you know, all these things where it's like, ah, at what point? did he not think outside of that room, you know? In the last 18 hours, they had found Corey had killed himself. They had to leave their home and spend much of the night at the police department and then start planning his funeral. Katie was still in shock when they finally got back home. You're still in shock. You're still living that, like, that nightmare of, like, it's not real, right? Like, you just hope that it's not real and that you're going to walk in and he's going to be there. And it's going to be like, like, this didn't really happen. Ethan and Maya were emotionally numb over the next several days. They were in shock. They don't, they don't have a clue what even hit them. Emotionally numb. I mean, there was no, the emotions were, I mean, they were all over the place, but yet they were just, they were numb. And I mean, as an adult, I can't process it. So as kids, I, I have no idea how they, how they even processed it or are continuing to try to process. An even more daunting task was the kids having to help with the funeral plans of their father. They both helped with 
you know, some of like sound selections and like pictures and what pictures do we use and what music do we put to those pictures when we did the slideshows and stuff and Ethan helped pick out, you know, the uh, the urn and and the like pamphlets, like what we were going to use for pamphlets and just in general let try to be a part of it. When children lose a parent to suicide, they're forced to grow up very, very quickly. South St. Paul Police Sergeant Corey Slifko died unexpectedly while off-duty Tuesday evening. The 20-year police veteran leaves behind a wife and two young children. The department released a statement saying its staff is in mourning and Slifko's presence will be sorely missed. Katie Johnston for WCCO 4 News. It was a sunny, bright, and cool Thursday morning. It was November 14th and Corey's celebration of life was held at the Crossroads Church in Woodbury with Pastor Marcy officiating. Me walking up here with a faulty exhaust. This exhaust has been leaning on the corner of every office I've had since the summer of 2013. A hot summer day while I was at work. Corey was there weeding outside the church. The reason Corey was weeding is because he had some community service to work work off uh, because he'd recently taken a midnight drive that everyone but Corey remembers. I've been asked over the years, uh, what's the deal with a muffler in your corner? And uh, even my husband recently said, get rid of that thing. Why are you moving it to your new space? And my answer has always been, I'm saving it for a sermon that I haven't given yet. A sermon that Corey helped me write, and neither of us could have imagined that today would be the day that I deliver it. An hour or two into Corey weeding, and it was a hot day. Corey came in dripping with sweat and hauling this behind him. And he said, Marcy, I think I have a sermon for you. And we spent the next hour or so talking about the symbolism and how it related to his life and how it relates to all of ours. Over six years ago, What I'm about to share was on Corey's heart. And I want to share it with you today. And my prayer is that whatever God wanted you to receive today, that you would receive that. This muffler was found in the flower beds behind a church. Where it was found was a long ways away from any street or any parking lot, which makes it safe for us to draw a few different conclusions. Someone wanted to hide it there. Where it was found, it wasn't possible that it had just fallen off and accidentally gotten left behind. It fell off and it was carried some 50 yards and hidden away in the flower beds behind a church assuming no one would ever find it. 
Why? They had carried it past a sidewalk that they could have just thrown it down on. They even carried it past a dumpster that it would have fit in. And they took special care to put it deep into the flower beds, carefully tucking it away right along the building. A lot of effort went into hiding this thing. I also think it's interesting that they didn't want it to be a bother to our church either. They'd put it away so nicely so it wouldn't hurt anyone or anything. And consider what they were hiding. I mean, this isn't a bumper that was involved in a hit and run. They weren't hiding a mistake. Anyone that heard that your muffler fell off wouldn't think you'd been negligent. They're exposed to the elements. They deteriorate. They wear. They have issues. So why hide it? So why hide it? Corey is remembered by all as a great cop and a great person. He was a wonderful person, you know, a wonderful husband, a great dad. He loved his job. He always felt like police was his calling in life and that service over self was what he was put on this earth to do. And, and he did it. And, and he was honored every day to put on that uniform and, and go to work. The amount of support that we were shown, uh, Katie was shown, and um, respect that was offered for Corey Bloomingway. Um, when we started uh, in the hours, the days following Corey's death, I didn't really know where it was going to end up and the actual service itself. Again, um, all a bit foggy was uh, much more impactful than I could have ever imagined. From law enforcement today, following the death of Officer Tara O'Sullivan from Sacramento. And I thought it would be fitting to close with pieces of that article that Corey said was so good. And I quote, I believe our calling as police officers is not dissimilar from another calling that we read about in the Bible. In the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, we read about God's commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. Also, I heard a voice, it says in Isaiah, of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And without hesitation, Isaiah responded, Here I am send me. God was seeking out someone for a difficult and dangerous mission. The job would likely result in great personal cost to whomever accepted. Isaiah was well aware of this. He did not answer without thorough understanding of the potential consequences. And despite the danger he knew he would face, he counted it an honor to risk everything for such a sacred mission. While this passage is referring to a commissioning of a prophet, there are obvious parallels to our profession. Much like the time of Isaiah, our culture is desperate for good men and women to answer the call for service. 
And like Isaiah, Officer Tara O'Sullivan and Corey Michael Slifko answered, here I am, send me. And if I were to die before I'm old, I pray for those I may leave behind to remember. It was willingly that I accepted the terms of my service. I knew the potential risks, but I also knew the need for someone to answer the call. I pray we will find some measure of comfort in the fact that I did this job because someone must and so few will. I pray they will remember my words as I volunteered to answer the call to service. Here I am. Send me. Corey's service was wrapped up with the trumpet playing taps, bagpipes playing Amazing Grace, and the bell toll, ringing the bell one time for each year of service. Then, Corey's flag was presented to Katie. Finally, and arguably one of the toughest moments in a law enforcement funeral for cops, is the 10-7 call. 10-7 is the code for officer out of service. 21-S-6. Empire calling 21-S-6. Empire to all cars, prepare to copy. Empire to all cars. 21-6, Sergeant Corey Slifko has been an outstanding police officer with the South St. Paul Police Department for the last 20 years. Corey served as a field training officer, SWAT team commander, investigator, a patrol supervisor, and several other specialty units. Corey was a loving husband to his wife, Katie, a caring and devoted father to Ethan and Maya, and a great friend to all. Corey touched the lives of many people, and he will be greatly missed. 21S6 is out of service. Daily stress our cops take on with this calling is truly immense, and our, our law enforcement leaders need to continue to work to improve how we're monitoring and managing our staff's mental health. I think like any person immersed in, in this line of work, you, you get exposed to an immense amount, an immense number of critical incidents that you become numb to over time. And, you know, through the lens of hindsight, since Corey's death and going back over the product of his career and looking at some of the incidents, many of which I was part of, many of which I wasn't, to any person outside of this line of work, each of those incidents would have been a life-changing event. But for those in this line of work, it, it's another day at the office. And I don't think we organizationally or professionally probably supported our staff, Corey included, uh, to the extent we should have or could have um, 
as we process each of those events over the last 20 years. Like, you know, the best way to describe him and the, and the things that I think about when I think about Corey were, were just the way I described him when we opened this conversation, that he was just, he was, he's one of those guys that's just all in on the stuff that he does. And if, uh, if it was having fun, he was all in. If it was work, he was all in. If he was going to a barking dog, dog call, you could rest assured that by the end of the call, the DEA would be involved and he'd be on the phone with the U.S. attorney. No question. Because that's just how he was wired. It's just how he was wired. And, and, and like I said, it was, you know, he was the type of guy that he had, you know, if he, if, if he decided that you needed a theme song, every time you walked into a room, you were going to hear that phone or his, uh, that song coming out of his phone. And how he dialed it up so quick, I have no idea. Because I watched him do it to people sometimes. I was like, how do you even find that that fast? But yeah, that's, you know, he was just, he was just the, he was just the greatest guy. And it's just... Even a couple of years removed, it's just it's just sad that he didn't feel comfortable reaching out. Because I would have dropped everything that I was doing. And I think most anybody that knew him would have. When we talk about law enforcement and stress and PTSD, we often just talk about the stress of each call, of each incident, each crisis. We often overlook the stress that our cops are under off the clock the inability to turn it off the inability to go home and to be a dad or mom or partner and leave work at work this kind of stress can accumulate over time it can be just as dangerous and just as deadly as the stress from dealing with multiple critical incidents it can be especially challenging for driven cops like Corey. Well, I don't know if there was a specific incident that was a catalyst. Uh, I, I do know that many times I would have conversations with Corey and say, you don't need to do this now. And it wasn't necessarily a time management, but it was a it was an immense commitment to his job and an immense commitment to his organization. That, in hindsight, came at the cost of his commitment and his relationship with his family. That on his off days, on his off hours, I think he had a difficult time separating himself from work. We all have things that have to be done, and we all have emergencies that pop in our life, I think, that have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with at inopportune times. But I think Corey never really fully developed the ability to take in information and look at it and say, that can wait till tomorrow. I don't have to deal with that right now. That can wait till tomorrow, or that can wait till Friday when I get back to work or Monday. That, I think that started with, um, while not a specific incident, I think that probably started with his investment in the SWAT team in that uh, similar to investigative experience, you're kind of always on call and there's always bad things. There's always bad people doing bad things and there's always possibilities down the road. So you're starting to pre-plan all the time. What do I do to arrest this guy? How do I mitigate this situation? My opinion, I think it started there. And then it enhanced in investigations, as you well know. It's not like patrol work where you, you, you sign off your computer or you're done for the day. You know, investigations, you're carrying that work home and you're always thinking, how am I going to process my day tomorrow? And then new emergencies pop in the middle and you're constantly reprocessing that. I don't think Corey ever mastered the ability to turn that light switch off and say, I can deal with that tomorrow. I do not have to deal with that right now. Because it was so, for me, it was so unexpected that it was him that this happened to 
that somebody that you see, I mean, they're, they're one of the true believers in the law enforcement mission. They're a hard charger. Everything they're do, they're, they're all in. I never saw him in a bad mood. You know, I, he's human. I know he had them, but he always kept them from us, you know. And, and then to see that it was him that this happened to, I think that's what opened a lot of eyes. I, you know, I, it wasn't somebody that you had seen openly struggling with some demons, you know. There were some smaller signs there, but of all the people, you know, I would have never guessed that this would have been him. You know, in hindsight, I would say absolutely. There were uh, warning signs that I, I would say now that I'm much more attentive to. There was Corey's sick time uh, was increasing. It wasn't problematic, and he was very open with he was very open with the pain he was experiencing. And he would, uh, it would not be uncommon for him to call me and say, hey, I can't come in tonight. Um, the pain is just too much. I haven't slept well in the last day or the last two days or the last three days. I'm going to take some medication. Uh, I need to sleep. And my response to him at that time was like, absolutely, this is what your sick time is for. You need to take care of yourself. And that was the end of my response. And in hindsight, those were happening, uh, I don't want to say with any sort of pattern but they were happening and and that should have been probably uh, well that quite frankly that should have been an indication that he was struggling much greater than I was aware it absolutely when he was here had no impact on his work but again through hindsight what I've come to learn is that by the time an employee bubbles I'll call it at work or their work product is impacted more often than not the situation has spiraled out of control in their personal life. By the time it bubbles at work, it's already out of control in their personal life. This has been uh, something that I've learned. Some warning signs may be more obvious or more noticeable, yet they still can be easy to overlook. I have an interesting perspective with a, uh, I'll call it a co-worker from another agency, that for a number of years, Corey and I worked with this individual for a long time. And the general perception was that this individual was just a jerk as well. You know, just a poor attitude, just a jerk. And this is after Corey's death. This individual came out and um, retired from uh, his profession and and, uh, worked with our local cable provider to, to tell his story about the challenges he faced to PTSD. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it opened my eyes to I think we all have employees in our organization or in organizations we're close to that we look at and say, you know, that person's just a jerk. They're just a foul individual. And, and it may very well be the case. But what's opened my eyes is each of those negative interactions could be reflective of the challenges that person's facing in their own life and, and the PTSD and the struggles they're facing, which clearly was for this employee. And I bring that up in the context of, um, for other Cleos or other sheriffs, my recommendation um, is is to have the difficult conversations. Is conversations I wish I would have had with Corey. Um, I'm much more aware now, but at the same time, when I see employees uh, under my direction, or just coworkers or friends, and I see them struggling to be able to have uh, that uncomfortable conversation and not just talk about the fluff about how's your wife and, you know, are you guys fighting at home or is it kids? But but to have that uncomfortable conversation about how they are doing. 
and how they are processing. As far as programs, um, you know, as we all know, the challenges that exist in law enforcement right now are certainly greater than I've ever seen them. Um, and I'm concerned that it's having an impact on the mental health of our officers. Uh, I have a hard time believing it's not. And if we already, if we're already losing so many officers to uh, different challenges related to our career, why would we not invest resources? And, and we all have precious resources, but why would we not invest our resources in, in what is the biggest line item in our budget if it comes down to a budget standpoint? And that's our staffing. You know, I, I, I can't speak for a sheriff's office, but for the police department, our biggest line item in our budget is, is employees. And if we don't invest in them, um, we're, we're, we're not being mindful of the taxpayer dollars. If you want to look at from a budgetary standpoint, I think if you want to look at from an ethical standpoint, um, we're not being good leaders. Corey's death caused a tremendous ripple effect through the South St. Paul Police Department. A ripple effect still felt today. I think it was hands down. It was a it was a kick in the groin, a punch in the gut that we still have not recovered from. It, it impacted our organization um, internally within the police department our city as a whole because Corey was very well respected, not just internally in the police department, but through all of our city staff, through our, you know, fire department who, you know, we work closely with day in and day out through the, the you know, our public works department, our parks department, every aspect of our city operation. It, you know, personally, I, I lost, I'll call it my guy, my, my confident, the person I could count on, the person I could trust with anything. Uh, organizationally, especially in a small organization, I think, you know, you're always forecasting the future and, you know, especially I, I firmly believe that, you know, police officers gossip more than teenage girls, um, you know, what's going on and what's going to happen and what this person's thinking and what this person's doing. And, you know, without a, without a question, I think any officer in this department would tell you that Corey had a, had a significant role in what was going to be the future of our organization. Um, so to that aspect, um, the impact of his, uh, of his death has been enormous. The bright side coming out of it is that it has helped, I think, us have many more open conversations with our staff. It has helped me learn how to be more attentive to the needs of our employees and uh, the challenges they face in their professional and their personal life. And then it's really forced us um, to take a deep dive into an aspect of law enforcement that is really glossed over or really kind of given lip service to, and that's, that's officer wellness. And, um, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, we didn't have the opportunity to dance around it. We had to confront it head on after Corey's death. Corey's story, his memory, continues to make a difference with area agencies who have really taken a long, hard look at how to better care for their cops. I don't want to say, I struggle sometimes to find the right words to explain this because it sounds terrible the way it comes out of my mouth every time, but I always say that's the one great thing that's going to come out, at least for me and my agency, that's going to come out of Corey's death is that we've kicked the door wide open on taking care of ourselves. And, and, and it's made a difference. 
because it, it's opened people's eyes to the fact that it can happen. It can happen to people that we know. It can happen to people that we care about and that we love. And it can happen to us. If you were to ask me right now, Sheriff, if, uh, if I thought my police department was mentally sound, I would tell you, based on what I know of them, yes. But this incident has made it clear to me that while I may believe that, I, I recognize now, I don't know. I don't know. And that, frankly, it kind of scares me a little bit. I think anybody that gets into law enforcement, particularly, particularly then getting into leadership, I mean, I think we all accept the fact that, you know, we can lose one of our cops in the line of duty. We all signed up knowing that that was one of the, one of the risks. When I, when, when I signed up, I didn't know that my mental health was going to be at risk. Nobody told me that. Nobody told me that. Nobody talked about that. Nobody, you know, and I don't think you get out of this line of work without a little damage to your soul. I really don't, you know, and I think, I think we're, I think we've kicked the door open on that now. And I think we're making good strides on, on making sure that the cops coming up now are going to grow up in this profession, knowing that it's okay to talk about stuff. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to not be well. That's okay. That happens, you know, and I think, leaders are getting better at recognizing that that also is a normal byproduct of our work and we need to take care of our people rather than ostracize them in a line of duty death for a law enforcement officer they're remembered they're recognized they're honored for their service and their sacrifice they're honored every year in may during police week Their names are displayed on their local memorials, at the state memorials, and at the National Memorial in Washington, D.C. Local, state, and national organizations work throughout the year supporting their survivor families, supporting these fallen officers' kids. They work to make sure these families know that we'll never forget the service and the sacrifice of their loved one, of their hero. The question is... What do we do for survivor families who've lost their loved one, their officer, to suicide? Frankly, these tend to be the forgotten heroes, the forgotten survivor families. Heroes and legacies often lost due to the stigma of mental health and the shroud of suicide. Since 1776, there have been over 25,000 law enforcement line-of-duty deaths reported in the United States, from gunshots to car crashes to assaults. Some died at the scene. Some died later from their injuries. All are recognized and remembered as heroes. Now that you know Corey's case, how is his death any different? Corey's death is directly related to chronic pain from injuries from the job, from trying to manage that pain, from trying to manage the stress and PTSD from years and years of service. Stress from an environment we've created in law enforcement that forces proud cops like Corey to try and fight this internal fight themselves versus asking for help versus talking about their pain, the fear of losing their badge, losing their rank, the fear of looking weak to the leaders above them or weak to the officers they lead, weak to their community who trusts them to protect them. 
an environment perpetuated by the media and by politics that tells us we make one mistake and we'll be the next big national news story, that our families will be dragged through the system, that we may go to prison and lose everything. We owe it to cops like Corey to make sure we create an environment for our cops where they know it's okay not to be okay, where they know it's okay to ask for help, where they know we support them, where we've got their back. I am absolutely your number one supporter. I couldn't love you all more. And yes, are there are there bad, you know, cops? Yes, there's bad in everything. There's bad bankers, there's bad babysitters, there's bad everything. But the 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 good I mean, it's ridiculous how far it outreaches and who knows if they're going through something tough, you know what I mean? Or they've, they've gone through PTSD or I don't know. I'm just the kind of person that I want to be the solution, not the, not the blaming person. I, I, there's too much negativity and fault finding in the world. And I believe there's too many great people in the world to go to a dark place. I, I want to be one that, that, that's you know, exuding light and bringing light to those who work so hard to keep us safe. Fortunately, agencies across the state and the country, like South St. Paul PD, like the Farmington Police Department, they're now taking this threat against our officers head on. They've made great strides and great changes to help do everything they can to never have a loss like this again in their blue family. Most people in America experience a major crisis, a major trauma, once or twice in their lives. Our cops can experience that multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a night. We need to recognize that we can't continue to expose our men and women to these traumas, to these crises, without providing them the tools and the support to manage the stress that goes along with this career. So the question, again, is knowing now what you know about Corey and about his career and about his death, why aren't we offering these officers the same respect and the same honor as other fallen officers? Why are we not supporting these survivor families and making sure that they know we're there for them, that they know that we recognize their service and their sacrifice, and that their loved one will never be forgotten. This month, we focused on sharing information about organizations that are doing just that. In Minnesota, the Invisible Wounds Project does tremendous work providing counseling for first responders, counseling that's confidential, non-judgmental, and counseling that's free for first responders, for our cops. They really push the reality that in our profession, the bravery that enables men and women to become first responders is also the personality trait that makes them feel like they should not need to ask for help themselves. That, paired with society's stigma surrounding mental health and professional structures that frequently punish those who do seek help, all have helped create this crisis. These heroes are more likely to die by suicide than in the line of duty. According to the Invisible Wounds Project, first responders are 20% more likely to commit suicide than the general public. The experiences that come with this profession take a serious toll, often resulting in PTSD and depression. They're images you can't unsee. 
making our officers at higher risk for suicide than any other profession. Many suffer in silence, and too many end their pain with suicide, like Corey did. Blue Help is part of the national organization First Help. Their mission is to reduce mental health stigma through education, advocate for benefits for those suffering from post-traumatic stress, acknowledge the service and sacrifice of law enforcement officers we've lost to suicide, assist officers in their search for healing, and to bring awareness to suicide and mental health issues. They are a great resource for agencies and cops trying to find resources and help in their area. Finally, the National Concerns of Police Survivors, or COPS, has been recognizing line-of-duty deaths for years and supporting their survivor families. With well over 50,000 members, COPS is the largest national organization supporting fallen officers and their families. Recognizing the need for survivor families of cops lost to suicide, they've helped form Survivors of Blue Suicide to provide the same level of support for suicide survivor families. It's an organization focused on recognizing these fallen heroes and providing ongoing support for their survivor families. You can find out much more information about all three of these great organizations on our website and our podcast channel on your favorite podcast app. When we lose one of these heroes to suicide, like Sergeant Corey Slifko, we have a duty to honor and remember them, to recognize their service and their sacrifice, and to hold up and support their survivor families, like his wife Katie and his kids Ethan and Maya. Corey's family, his wife Katie, and his kids have sacrificed so much because of his service. They sacrificed before, and they continue to sacrifice after his death. They've chosen to open up and share their story with us, as hard as it may be for them to share, in hopes that we'll continue to share Corey's story to help ensure no other law enforcement families have to go through what they've gone through, what they continue to go through. We owe it to them and to Corey to always be there to support them, to never forget his service and his sacrifice to this great calling and to his community that he cared so deeply about. And to ensure that Sergeant Corey Slifko is never forgotten, that he's always remembered for what he was, a hero. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. A Huda Media Production.